Hey, you with the rhinestone dog collar. Between us dogs, I just convinced my human to upgrade to a new home with a 1,200 square foot bathroom. I think she called it a yard. With Wells Fargo's 3% down payment on a fixed rate loan, my human realized a new home was within reach. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash woof. Wells Fargo Home Mortgage. Down payments as low as 3% on a fixed rate loan require mortgage insurance. Ask a home mortgage consultant about loan requirements. Wells Fargo Home Mortgage is a division of Wells Fargo Bank N.A. Equal housing lender. NMLS RID 399801. Feral Audio. From New York City, it's the Todd Berry Podcast. The Todd Berry Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome. Welcome back. It's been a while. Uh, Will Schaff from a great band called Ockerville River. He actually is sort of Ockerville River. We get into that. Uh, he's on the show. I like to have the occasional musician on. He's good to talk to. And uh, what do we got here? Oh, yeah. A few things. Big bombshells. I have a book coming out. It's not going to be out for many months, but why not order it <clears throat> way in advance? It's called Thank You for Coming to Hattiesburg. It's a tour diary about uh, visiting secondary sort of markety cities. Uh, sounds good, right? I don't. Maybe that doesn't sound good. But if you go on Amazon and you want to pre-order it, I've never pre-ordered anything in my life, so I can't expect you to. But if you look for me in the book department, why not? Let's make this a number one bestseller before it's even written yet. Todd Berry podcast t-shirts. Go to toddberry.com forward slash shirt and you can get some t-shirts or one t-shirt. I've got some tour dates coming up. Where am I going? Let's see. Do, 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 do. Uh, Ames, Iowa. Never been there. September 17th for the Maximum Ames Festival. Uh, September 22nd through 27th. I'll be at the Just for Last Festival in Toronto. 28th, I'll be at the YYC Comedy Festival in Calgary. November 17th, I'll be at the Texas Theater in Dallas. And I'm going to have a bunch of other dates added pretty soon. Go to feralaudio.com. They produce this podcast and many others. And if you want to donate, there's a fancy way to donate. It's not fancy, but go click on Support Our Artists. And there's an Amazon link. And if you just order stuff through Amazon, part of that will go to the various podcasters and uh thinking thinking if there's anything i'm leaving leaving out i think that's it if not i'll just i'll feel bad and when i remember that i left something out here's will chef ockerville river a sad one oh we're gonna open sad here yeah okay (laughs) (laughs) we're gonna will started to tell me a story and i I said why don't we get it on on tape because I am always desperate for things to fill the time. So yeah, well, it's just a st- it's not like an interesting story or a fascinating story. It's more just like um, a processing story because I'm still processing it. So let's let's work it out. All right, this is a thing I do too. Is like uh, I've just now started to realize it, and but like when I talk to people, I go really life and death dark really fast yeah not a thing i intend to do it's just a thing that i naturally you go all or nothing kind of yeah like i'll meet somebody i'll be like so how do you want to be buried you know like oh you just go right to that (laughs) yeah but so i was reading this article on the subway that was about a woman who had 
ALS and she decided to take medication oh. to die. Yeah. And she had all of her friends over and she had. I like read, a, I think yeah, I read that same thing. That yeah. Piece. Yeah. And I was like, um, very close to tears on the subway. As I was too. Yeah. And, um, you know how when you, uh, when you read something like that, you feel like, um, very sensitized. Suddenly I looked around the train and everybody seemed so beautiful and special and uh -huh. worthy of being cherished. And it was this really beautiful moment of grace. Right. And I walked up, um, onto the subway platform for the F and there was this like drone happening like this, like I felt like I was suddenly in an ashram. Uh -huh. Um, and what it was, was there was a woman singing a pop song into a, like for money into a little stereo, but there was some note that was, um, ringing out in the pop song backing track that was resonating with the platform acoustics. Uh -huh. So the overall effect was it sounded like this Alice Coltrane drone. In fact, it was probably like a Adele song or something. Oh, but wow. For a second from far away, it sounded like that. So w I have a thing with subway performers where if I like the music, I will give them a little bit of money. Right. So I gave her some money and she said, bless you. And I felt even more... Uh, this thing, this like precious grace uh -huh. thing. And then I walked past a guy who was uh, homeless and he was cursing really loudly to himself. Yeah. And he was doing what appeared to be getting prepared to jump in front of the train. Oh, man. He was walking up to the right, like running right up to the front and almost jumping and then backing up and doing it again. And the whole time he was like cursing to himself really loud. Yeah, I, I bet he's done that before. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I thought, uh, I think I might have to intervene mm -hmm. to prevent this guy from jumping in front of the train, but I don't feel, I don't know how in the world, like what step one of that intervention is. Um, and he ended up not doing it. So um, that reason I brought this up is not because it's a funny story, <laughs> but because that literally just happened right. about like, you know, three minutes ago. And I'm still I like that heat of the moment stuff. Um, so I was like, I was like, should I go over to him and be like, hey, uh, don't throw yourself in front of the train. Right. You know, can you could distract him, I guess. You could just go, come yeah. here, I want to talk to you. <laughs> just like start or harmonizing you, with the Adele song. You know, maybe if you, you know, or you could have said, like, I have some money for you if he was a homeless guy. Yeah, I thought about but that. But I bet he's a guy who is, uh, I feel like, I, you know, I don't want to assume this, but it might be his thing. Like, this is what I do. It I run be. close to the train, the edge. Yeah, you know, I'm, a, um, I'm a, uh, a small town kid. Like, I'm from a really small town. Uh, and... I often feel like Joe Buck in New York City. Like yeah. I often, and Stephen, after living here for ten years or whatever, I still feel like, um, like I get overly involved in things like that. Yeah. It's like a, and then I feel like a rube because, like, I remember one time giving somebody money on a train and, and him being like, "God bless you," and me being like, "God bless you," and then I followed him out and I literally saw him getting into a drug dealer's car. <laughs> like, like I heard him call up. He's like, yo, yo, it's crazy Johnny. Like, yeah. where are you? You know, and the car pulls up and he gets in and I was like, I gave that guy like five bucks. Right. You know, like that, he could probably get what I get. You could get some crack for that. Probably. I guess so. I don't know. Yeah. I had a guy once I walked by on the East village and he, um, he's like, can someone call the police? And I kind of, all right, I got to stop. And, yeah. and then I kind of looked at him and I go, you all right. And I realized he was all right. And yeah. he's kind of just drunk and yelling that out. 
Yeah. I mean, at least that's the way I saw it. I hope I, it felt, because I kind of just engaged him and he seemed just like, oh yeah, I just yelled that out. Yeah. But I, then, of course, now that I'm saying it, I realize I may have killed a man. <laughs> <laughs> I remember, so people talk about like when you move to New York, you know you're a New York, like you can't say you're a New Yorker until you've been here for 10 years is the thing I've heard. Mm. Um, but I always felt like I knew I was a New Yorker pretty early on. I was walking down the street and I suddenly remembered that four blocks earlier I had stepped over a guy lying face down on the sidewalk. Right. And that was when I was like, oh, I guess I'm a New Yorker now. <laughs> yeah, there are those moments where you're like, how do I? Yeah, you're just like, do you realize this looks like insane if you don't live in New York or other cities like yeah. San Francisco or something where you're like, you just, oh, yeah, the, the guy's sleeping on the sidewalk. Yeah. Well, and it's like, things. so what are you supposed to do? Are you supposed to, um, you know, like help someone? I don't know. It's kind of similar. It's kind of uh, if you've ever had a – see, this is what I do. I get like really – I was going to say if you've ever had a relationship with somebody with like a severe substance abuse problem. Yeah. There's a lot of the time there's a um, – you're constantly divide, like drawing that line where you're sort of like, am I a sucker for helping this person? Because like they might take advantage of me. Right. Because they have. And it's not like, you know, do I just like uh, make the cut and say, you know. Just like you're out of my life, you can damage yourself all you want. I'm not going to help. I vote for that. Yeah, I mean, if it's if it's that. like a real uh, hardcore addiction, right? Yeah. Right. Well, I I mean, yes, that's in the end. I have uh, you know in practice um, followed that course, but you know I always doubt it. Anyway, this is heavy. Starting... This is a heavy beginning. What was it you said you want to start? <laughs> I'll be getting rid of all this. Don't worry. No, I yeah, am. Yeah. No, it, it's good. I like it. I like when people come in and they have something immediately on their mind. It's like, all right, that's a good. Uh, well, it wasn't a thing that I was like, I've got to start right. with this like really dark thing. I it threw you a curveball. Like, yeah, exactly. Um, it was like you were like, do you want to start rolling? And I was like, I, but maybe, maybe. I don't know if this is like a good story yet. <laughs> it's, that was a good one. And you know, I, I uh, so you, where you live in Brooklyn? I live in Williamsburg. Mm -hmm. In the, uh, right in the thick of it, like the Bedford area? Yes. Oh, yeah. 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 Right in the middle of everything. I kind of like Williamsburg. I mean, people make fun of it, and I probably make fun of it, but. I mean, I have mixed feelings about it. Um, it's funny, you know, it's because it's gone through so many changes in a short period of time. I remember reading um, back in the, I guess maybe it was like the late 80s, early 90s, uh, police would call. Um, there's this sort of um, street that's near where I live, and they used to refer to it as, like, the drug and death corridor. Uh -huh. And um, then, of course, when I first came to um, to New York playing with my band, I used to go stay with my friend Jeff Hoskins, uh, who, was, uh, who ended up being our sound man. And um, he was kind of one of the, f one, not the first wave of artists that came in and colonized, but he was <laughs> sort of part of that, yeah. you know what I mean? And... Um, it was st it still felt to me sort of like a frontier. And then, of course, it became this kind of like uh, hipster playland. And it was very common to see like a 22-year-old dude dressed like he was from the movie The Warriors. You know, there'd be like a guy with his like shirt open and a headband. And, yeah. Um, and I used to hate those guys. And then now it's in this whole new phase where like those guys, even with all their parents' money, have been forced out. And it's mostly 
really wealthy people who live on the high rises on the water, or it's like um, French tourists. I mean, it's mostly like I feel like I'm in a tourist oh, situation. Oh, like Airbnb situation? I guess. I don't know. I don't really understand it. Have you ever stayed in an Airbnb? I have. Yeah. Yeah, I've stayed in multiple really? Airbnbs. Yeah, because on tour, it's like... It's a good solution. Oh, I guess that would be a new thing. That's a great idea, yeah, right? You get a four-bedroom house it, or something. Exactly. Like, you could pay, you know, whatever it is, $500, $600 for a bunch of, like, crappy hotel rooms. Uh-huh. Or you could get, like, a house with, like, a grapefruit tree and a pool. Yeah. I just stayed at one in, in uh, where was it? Beacon, New York. Mm. I like Beacon. Yeah, it had an apple tree. It was it was nice. Yeah. yeah. Um, do, you ever go, do you ever go on, like, writing retreats? Yeah, that's how I uh that's how I wrote this new record. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. I was going to get into the record. Yeah, yeah. I um similar to that small town thing I was telling you about. Uh-huh. You know, there are some people, um some artists who uh they're like, "Oh, I love New York. It gives me so much energy." You know, like they're like symbiotic with New York. Right. And the energy of New York feeds into them and they feel alive and they do this great work. And um that's great, and, I, and and I'm happy for them. It's not how I work. For me, um, the artistic voice or whatever it is that gives me my, my ideas, uh-huh. it talks like really, really, really quietly, and so I get really easily distracted. Uh-huh. So if somebody's about to throw themselves in front of a train, or like you know is in my face, or it's really awful on the subway platform, or there's people screaming from the bar downstairs. That voice just gets drowned out. So I like to go. Uh, it's a. It was a whole thing when I started to realize I don't have to do this. You know, I can just like go out of town and I can go write. And when I wrote this record, I have a friend who has a really beautiful little cabin up in the Catskills, and um, I go and stay there whenever I can. So I was just up there like all day long. You know, every day, just all I really did was like eat and write and sleep. You know, Were you there by yourself, or did you have your band? Just or? by myself. Wow. Yeah. So how long can, like, how many hours a day can you get? Like, I can do, I can work for a good, like, 18 minutes. <laughs> and then it's like, uh, you know, it's Twitter time or whatever. Yeah. But I didn't do, I, I mostly tried to stay away from social media. Um, I mostly tried to not answer emails, which is hard to do, because you feel like your career is, like, crashing and burning right. behind your back. Um I can go for a long time, but but the way that I like to work these days is like, I'll write and I'll take a break and I'll write and I'll take a break. I don't. I, I mean, I would say I don't like to force it, but um, that's not entirely accurate because I think that sometimes you do have to force it. Like, you have to have the you have to know how how to force it productively. So, I will a little bit, but what I like to do is what was cool about that house is that. It's small, it's beautiful, it's in the country. There's actually speakers that project to outside. So I could record a little bit, play back what I did, walk around the property, listen to it in the woods and uh-huh. stuff like that. Oh, Go wow. back in the house, you know, whatever, do whatever menial task, wash the dishes or, you know, in the winter, it was in the fall, so I could have a fire going. And I mean, when you're like just there to write and there's like a fire going and it's pretty inspiring. How long were you there? How, like, how long did it take to write this record? Well, I was there for about two months total but it was spread out among like i would have to go back to the city a lot so i would like drive back to the city for like one day and then mm-hmm. for like half a day and then i go back um this record i 
the way it started, the way it happened was um, my ex drummer, who is really amazing. Was that the guy I saw when I went to? Um... Yes. Oh, he's your ex drummer. Yeah. Now? Well, he no, he's a current. He's once in future drummer. Yeah. Okay. He was like uh, he used to play drums for us, and then he actually left, and then he wrote me, and he was like. I'm coming to town. Let's do some recording. And um, it took me a long time to realize this, but there's a saying in music, which is like, you're only as good as your drummer. Uh -huh. And it's really kind of... He's really good. He's amazing. Yeah, he's yeah. kind of a monster. And if you and have a great a good drummer, one. you yeah. can like... Oh, he's personally a monster. <laughs> <laughs> he's a bad person. Yeah, actually, yeah, either interpretation actually, of this. Yeah, I mean... But uh, no, uh, you know, if you have a good drummer, you can do anything. And And I don't just mean like very groove-based music. I mean, like, even singer-songwriter stuff becomes uh -huh. really great because you can have this beautiful backbone of a rhythm behind it that people feel, but they're not registering it as, like, oh, there's, like, a cool groove behind this. Right. Um, so I thought, well, geez, I've got this, like, amazing drummer, and I, I'd been wanting to write in a more acoustic mode but with, like, a good drummer. So I thought, you know, I'm just going to write a ton. I'm just going to write as much as I possibly can. And um, so I wrote, I, I got it, I think like 12 songs. And mm. I, that was in about a week and a half. I was just like, it's my job to like write wow. every day. Like I just like, you know, tons and tons of songs. And um, at this point, I wasn't thinking I'm writing an Ockerville River record. I was just like, this is a personal, this is like an exercise. Uh -huh. And I might, it might be a solo record. It might be like demos. It might be just... Um, something I did that I can like look back on and be like, right. that was cool. Um, and I wasn't thinking of it as Ockerville River, so I got different players. I got a um, jazz upright bassist. I got this guy who does like um, John Faye style, like finger style guitar. Uh -huh. And um, we went in the studio and just recorded everything. You know, we've got all the songs I recorded done two days. And um, it was like first and second takes. We wow. were just really, really fast. And then I looked back on it and I was like, this is really great. And then so about a year later, I was like, I think I'm going to release this as an Aquaville River record. So I went back to that house and I wrote like another five songs. We recorded those and then I chose from all that. So, uh, so maybe this is a dumb question, but are you Aquaville River or is it, the, is it a collective or is it like an ever-changing lineup? I mean, it's pretty much me. I didn't um, mean for it to be that way. Right. When I was in uh, high school... Uh, this is probably a common thing for guys in bands or girls in bands. Like I, um, I played with all these people, and it was like a big, beautiful community and friendship. And everybody wrote a lot of songs. And you know, you'd start a band with one person as a singer, and then you'd start another band where somebody else was singing. Right. And everybody was writing. And uh, I went away to college, and I hated it. And I just thought I'm gonna reset back to what I was doing in high school because which sounds actually pitiful now that I say it, but it was like I felt connected uh -huh. to art in high school. So I got my friends from my high school bands, and I convinced them to move to Austin. And I was like, we're all going to write songs. We're all going to sing them. It's going to be like the Beatles. But they had stopped writing, and they um, didn't really want to be the singer. So eventually I was just like, well, I, I guess I'm the singer. Uh -huh. um, and I, I wasn't ever very, like good at singing or good at guitar i mean i had to just like work and work and work and work at it but eventually they left to do their own things and so i replaced them with other people and they left to do their own things and eventually i just looked around and was like oh i guess it's just me <laughs> so that that gives you the freedom to really just uh not have to like 
I guess I don't know where I'm going with this. You can kind of just do whatever you want. You can have yeah. a different drummer every record. You can have yeah. a different keyboardist or whatever. The weird part is it took me a long time to realize that. Um, I, I think I felt like beholden to people or something uh-huh. like that. I guess I always, I really love collaboration, so I'm always like trying to improvise some kind of family out of whoever I'm working with. Uh-huh. Right. Um, and then eventually, I mean, that's a, in a lot of ways, that's what this record that's a, one of the themes of this record is like me just looking at, at this and being like, oh, it's just me. <laughs> right. I should mention the album's called Away. I, yes. meant, I should have mentioned that earlier. Now, let, I was thinking about that title, very simple. Do you, do you spend, like, because I occasionally have to title a record or something, mm-hmm. and I agonize over the title. Yes. Do, you, yeah. uh, do you agonize? I do. Um, sometimes you might feel this way, too, and sometimes it's really clear, and sometimes it's really not. Uh-huh. And um, when I was uh, did Black Sheep Boy back in 2005, I knew I wanted to make a record called Black Sheep Boy before I even had the song. Oh, you started with the title. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, so that one was like really just like a eureka moment. Right. Um, when I was working on these songs, I knew it wasn't quite like that, but what I had was that I knew I wanted it to be a beautiful word and a beautiful idea that was like hiding in plain sight. Like I wanted to be like homely, mm-hmm. you know, just like a, a thing you have around the house that right. you look at it and you're like, wow, this is actually quite beautiful. And so, um, a way it kind of all proceeds from that. I was just, one day I was sort of like away. I realized I've say it a lot in the songs uh-huh. and, uh, it's, oh, there's like several ways you could kind of view it as really meaningful to the record. So, yeah, I, I think uh, titles, I like either ones that are like, wow, that's super clever, or ones where it's like that, like a, or it's just one word, like R.E.M. Green. Yeah. It's just like, all right, that's a title, and then you move on to the songs. Yeah, it's like that, um, that middle ground is where you run into trouble. Like, you just either go for, like, you know, the exploding plastic inevitable or whatever, mm-hmm. or you go for like green. Right. <laughs> you know, like somehow in the middle is where it gets, where you get in trouble. Did, um, the first song, I forgot the title of it, but. Ockerville River R.I.P. Oh, really? And the thing yeah. you sent me, I think, maybe I played it out of order. Oh, you might have. There was like a seven minute song that opened. Something with, oh, Renee's? Call, Call Yourself Renee. Oh, that's not the first that's song. That's not the first oh, song. Oh, my God. See, that, that leads into a question that I realize I have more reason to ask now because I fucked up. Is, uh, <laughs> do you spend a lot of time seeking? Like, because I feel like we don't. Yes, li- I do. Okay. Yeah. Which is kind of weird because um, people don't really listen right. to Right. They albums just kind of snatch things. Yeah. Yeah. They bounce around. But, uh, I mean,. I just feel like as much as people's habits are like they do, they like to just like listen to one song, mm-hmm. um, you know, you can really get a real, into a relationship with the work by just like sitting there and listening. Yeah, to I, it I miss like, it kind of like I don't yeah. put on albums the way I used to. And I kind of feel I kind of miss like, oh, that slow one. And then that old oh, the fast yeah. one right after that one. And the way that I, you know, especially I, I listen a lot on, uh, on like LPs on like vinyl and the way mm. that I, uh, describe it as like, when you get to your favorite song, like let's say your favorite songs, like track four side one. Oh. So it's, you could cue it right up if you had it in digital, but there's something about if you like the first three songs before it, 
where it's like you're driving to your favorite place, like you're driving to your favorite place out in the country, and you're like, oh yeah, there's like there's the grocery store, there's the last gas station, here's this field, you and that's know? the first three songs. Yeah, so. and then you get to the place and you feel like it's more special and sacred because you took the long way there. I like that. So I mean, to me, I like making a and and you know, there's an ability to enter into sort of like a meditative state when you're listening to a full record. Because when mm -hmm. you're shuffling through, you'll hear like a soul song from 1972, and then you'll hear like an indie rock song from you know 2001, and then you'll hear like a classical recording from 1950 or whatever. And everything is like a different volume and there's different instruments and they're yeah. mastered differently and the feel is different. And you're never able to just like penetrate deep down into like a f one certain feel, one place, one time, one group of people. Um, so I just feel like the album is still like a really powerful art form. And, and, you know, I know that there's a lot of people out there who don't listen to albums like that, but it's just, I just... I don't know. I, I can't figure out a way to do it. Any other yeah, way. I mean, you might as well do it for those people who do list, still listen that way. And then if people want to bounce around, you know, you can't obviously micromanage that. So. And a lot of this record, too, was about me just saying, fuck what, like, what people want. Mm -hmm. Fuck what they want from me, what they want, uh, what they think I am, what they think I'm not. You know, like, I used to sometimes think about expectations and I would be like, either trying to like meet expectations or defy expectations. And both of those are kind of traps because with both of those, you're like catering to what people, what you think people right. think about you. Like a forced, not yeah. sticking to expectations. And it's some crazy mirror, hall of mirrors. And I just got to this place where I was like, I know, I love music, you know, like I know what I like music to do and I know how to make it happen. Like, so why don't I just do the thing that I think is nice? Right. You know. That song, uh, what's the Renee song? I'm sorry. It's called Call Yourself. Call Renee. Yourself. That's an interesting, because that's seven minutes. Do you ever, is there a point where you go, where you're writing, you go, oh my God, this is going to be a long one. Yeah, but that's another thing. Um, there was a lot of stuff on this record where I was just like, fuck it, this is like what I do. Because, um, you know, I use a lot of words, and um, I know for a fact that like I'd probably have more money if I used fewer words. Like for example, I'd probably get that like that Apple commercial if I wasn't like talking about moving to Rapid City and famous people who've had tracheotomies and like yeah. all these things that like have nothing to do with buying a new iPhone or with like going home or with like uh -huh. you know like people like to hear a song that's about like going home or about like loving someone right. or forgiving someone and they want to hear it in like a really minimum of uh, words. And I have this like tangle of like place names and times and you know like really specific jokes to myself and all this stuff and and i um i just thought you know that's what i do i'm i'm gonna go deeper into it you know i'm just gonna not stress about what what people think and then um similar with song lengths you know i used to always think well you know shouldn't be too many down tempo songs or like you know i should have a three minute 30 second song in there for for right. a single. I'm going to shut the door. Yeah. Um, and then eventually I just was like, I'm going to do what, you know, what I feel feels right to me. I'm Did you see gonna... the documentary on Rush by any chance? No, I didn't. It's one of the best music documentaries. Really? It's fan Even if you don't like, I mean, I'm not a fan of this, but it's fantastic. But yeah. I, I guess they showed that point where they had 
I forgot which album where maybe it's twenty one twelve. We had like a twenty minute song, and their record company's like, "You fucking got to be kidding!" Yeah, and they did it, and that's really what propelled. Them. Yeah, and it was like a, a twenty minute song, but um. Well, I mean, I was um. I was talking to Mike Studo, the owner of the Hi Fi. Yeah, I know bar, yeah. and um. He was saying to me about that bar, he was like. If I listen to somebody else with the bar and I make some change that I don't really believe in and it fails, I'm like, I feel like a fool. But if I, you know, if I make a, my own decision right. and that decision fails, it's like, well, you know, I was wrong. But like, I don't feel ashamed about it. And there's so much about success. I, you know, I've come to believe that success and failure is like, there's a heavy degree of randomness you know, or or maybe randomness is not the word, but like unknowableness and unpredictableness to it. But that at least if you're following your own heart and joy or passion or whatever you want to say, like you won't be ashamed of what you did. Right. You kind of win. Yeah. You're successful if you kind of do what you want. And you go, oh, that's, I, I, I mean, well, I guess we should both start singing my way now. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, do you, have you um, licensed any of your songs to commercials or? What are your general thoughts uh, on that? I've had little commercials here and there. You know, I used to be really purist about it, but these days there's like the money for all artists, for all musicians is like so few and so right. you know narrow that I see a lot of people whose sort of purist attitudes have changed about that. I feel like it. I'd still like if it were certain, like for example, like um, the environment's like my big cause. So uh -huh. like if it was like a heavy duty polluter or like some awful thing like that, I probably wouldn't do it. But in, in a lot of circumstances, I, I might. Do you, when that happens, do you, do they go, we're going to use this little snippet in this commercial? Do they go, we're just going to use something and you have to trust us and here's. Uh, it depends. You know, sometimes they want you to the, the, see in the sometimes they want you to send them an instrumental. Uh -huh. and that used to be uh, a real problem for me because forever and ever I would like play guitar and sing at the same time. And so then you have to like take out the guitar and you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. We were never very slick like that. And so I'd get asked for instrumentals and I'd be like, well, I didn't it's all do mixed. That. Yeah, yeah, I can't I do mean, it. I mean, there's so many bands now that they're like. There's a concept called stem mixes, which is like you make a mix of like the whole drum kit and the whole bass thing. And that's like a thing that probably smart people did, you know, for a long time. But I, that was a completely alien concept. Is that so you can like completely replace the drummer if you decide? Or it's so that if you get a sync, like if you get a license in, um, in a commercial they can like cut it however they want. They can remix it even if they want. Yeah. Or like let's say you want to get a remixer and you're like, we're going to do like a dance remix of this song. You can give it to them and they don't have to like, you know, balance the snare top and snare bottom themselves oh, wow. and things like that. Um, so you have you, uh, that's something that you just, like you just didn't get an inquiry from a, like they want to use your song. and There's people who like, guys are scou like scouring, right? Yeah, there's people whose job it is to say, hey, you should use, you know, Ockerville River or whatever. It is interesting what they end up using because, like, I know Sharon Van Etten. There's a Volvo commercial where there's like a oh, really? snippet of her song. Yeah, and it's like a dark song. And, yeah, and it's just like, I mean, it kind of works for the mood of the commercial. It's sort of haunting, but uh, it is weird when you know a song, then you see it in a commercial. There's this. Uh, there's my friend Zach Lopez was telling me about you know beds are burning. Obviously, the Midnight Oil song. Yeah, which yeah, is yeah. Like this sort of really. Um, like sort of advocating for the Aboriginal people of Australia and like 
it's about like Australia being stolen from the. It, it's this real political song, right? And uh, apparently that guy from Midnight Oil, people are always just like, yeah, play that song about sex. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say it was sold to like a mattress company or something. No, I was just sort of saying that there's that right. funny thing. But, you know, the, the other thing that's funny to me with, um, and it's probably true for all kinds of musicians who get known by more than just their friends, is that these narratives get formed about you and then it's just like a runaway train that you can't stop. Like, for example... Um, People always are like, like I'm seeing a lot uh, on at replies on Twitter where people are like, oh, there's a new Ockerville River record, like get ready to cry. You know, we're going to feel all the feels uh -huh. and things like that. And um, that's just a narrative about me now is that my songs are sad. Yeah. You know? And and maybe um, that's true. It's certainly not how I uh, I don't ever sit down being like got to write a real sad one for people right. today you know what i mean there are songs of yours that i can't listen to if i'm on the verge of being sad really yeah because i don't know i don't i i've come to the point where like i was that song girl in port really yeah like I, I can't even really tell you oh i know exactly what that song's about but just something about it it just goes yeah. oh, like, oh god i get sad <laughs> i mean <laughs> well, that's probably a good thing for you but i feel like there's there's two <laughs> kinds of sad songs there's like the kind that um it's sad, but it doesn't make you sad. It just like makes you feel that rainy day in the fall, rain on a window, like uh -huh. contemplative feeling that's almost like cozy and sweet. And then there's the kind of song that's sad and it like it's it's too much. Like, do you know that um, Randy Newman song, Old Man? Uh, I, not off the top it's of my head. It's a song where he's, I don't know if this is autobiographical or not, but the character in the song is going to see his dad on his deathbed. Uh -huh. And he's just, and it's very unsentimental. And he's just like, there's no God that's going to wait for you. You told me not to believe in that lie. You don't need nobody and nobody needs yeah. you. Goodbye, old man. Goodbye. Or, you know, it's like, it's so, um, it's too much. Like, I can't listen to it. I, I uh, it's just too, it's, it's like touching the third rail or something. Like, right. I can't do it, you know? Yeah, it's, um... Yeah, sometimes, I don't know, this is just, maybe this is off talk, but sometimes, lately I go, I just don't, I don't want to listen to anything sad. Really? Well, because, uh, yeah, I mean, just because, you know, if I'm spending all day alone in my apartment or something for hours, <laughs> it's like, there's already plenty of sad, you know, <laughs> you know, I don't need like, oh, hey, you're too happy sitting on your couch deciding whether to go to a third coffee shop tonight. Yeah, tonight. well, but, you know, so... Um I was listening to this artist the other day who who was um, in his early 20s, and um, he reminded me of the songs I used to write, which are which have a kind of like what I would call like decorative sadness. Uh -huh. Like when you're young, sadness is very romantic. So the thought of like it's like that where you wear black and you smoke cloves and you write songs about how life is sad. Yeah. And then you get older and you realize life really is sad. Like it's not. And it's not romantic. It's like scary and awful and um, it hurts. And um, and then you get to this place, and that was where I got to, which was this place of like, I wanna be useful. I wanna like comfort people. So if I'm talking about something being sad, I, hopefully I'm like helping right. the listener process it somehow or deal with it or work through it rather than just being like, and that was what I was hearing in this writer. It reminded me of me, this sort of like um, sadness is romantic thing. Because it's right. not really Dra romantic. Just dragging yourself into a pit just to do that. Kind of. Yeah. And I see it a lot on, on, on Twitter, too. People who have a sort of a like, life is depressing, I'm so sad. And you're sort of like, 
I have a feeling that you don't know how much sadder it's going to get. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Man, You're going to be like happy to be sad the way you're sad now right you're just well, i wonder what they're sad about like that's still only 140 characters <laughs> I, that, I heard it was going that makes up makes me sad doesn't where you're like i have to abbreviate a word so now i look stupid i kind of like the challenge of like when it's you, you get into that negative number and you're like oh man i gotta i gotta trim this baby down and then you actually pull sometimes it off sometimes you make it a little better yeah it, it, it does sort of but i, I think it's also shortened my attention span yeah, I mean, I, I've always been uh, like a maximalist, and I and I, <laughs> I hate the concept of minimalism. And when people are like, "Oh, but like the you know Apple products are so elegant," and like I hate I hate that. I hate elegant simplicity. I don't think it's elegant. Really? Yeah, I like uh, curly cues and giantness and uh, people biting off more than they can chew. And, like that to me is like more. Appealing. But some of your songs are kind of sparse, though, wouldn't you say? Like which? <laughs> um, I don't mean. I didn't mean that as a bad no, thing. No, no. I, I mean, just mean I, like they're they're not an assault. They're yeah. quiet. Is I guess is what I'm. Yeah. Quiet is the word I should use. Yeah, I guess I. I wish maybe I had more sparse songs. Yeah, maybe that sparse was the wrong word. Maybe I. Um, I wrote a song for Silver Gymnasium called Friends, which was my attempt to write in a very like brutally sparse style, uh -huh. and I still love it. It never came out, but like I often do think, oh God, Will, why can't you just simple song you know <laughs> that album's really good that's that seems more has more anthems on it is that mm -hmm. fair to say that? oh yeah sort of yeah, like yeah, fist yeah. in the air not fist in the air but you know what i mean like i guess i'll say fist in the air i like that fist in the air thing. <laughs> i don't mean like in a bro let's go beat up people way but just kind of like yeah yeah i mean i was listening to a lot of that stuff at the time and i i wanted to like you know i wanted to be able to give people that a reason to put their fist in the air, uh -huh. you know? And then when I was working on this record, I was not feeling particularly fist in the air. -y. Although right. I do talk about putting your fist in the air on one of the songs. Oh, do you? The industry. Yeah. I talk oh, I, about that's a good song. Though. People putting their fist in the air. I was going to ask you that first song though. Renee went, you dropped a few South Florida references in that. Yeah. Are you from down there? Cause no. I, I used to live down there for really? quite some time. And I heard Vero beach. It's like, Oh my God, what's he singing about Vero beach for? Well, okay, so I had this image. The line is, um, he. it's like talking about this guy who disappears and nobody knows where he is. And that's, so I'm like thinking about the places he could be. And one of the places is like he's in South Florida just like cruising through a fast food drive through Oh, okay. And then the other one is I had this image of like, the line is that uh, he could be easily seen in a Vero Beach Dillard's weaving in and out of the racks of beautiful blue men's shirts. And I had that. Do you ever go to a department store and you're walking through the clothes? Yeah. And you feel like you're in a cornfield or something. There's like... Just so many of the same colors? or It's just soothing somehow. Yeah. Like you can smell all this clean fabric and the shirts like brush up against you, <laughs> you know? And I was just thinking Dillard's and I... I was like, okay, well, what Dillard's would he be in? So I Googled all the Dillard's. I was going to see United if you fact States. checked that. Cause yeah. I wonder if there's Dillard's even in Vero Beach. Yeah. I, 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 um, <laughs> I Googled the location of every single Dillard's in America and Vero Beach just, I've never been to Vero Beach, but oh. it just seemed like a that, good Dillard's to I don't go think to. I've been to Vero Beach either, but I lived sort it's of. It's kind of ritzy, there. isn't it? Um, it might be. It's probably. I think Florida. The Florida has. Uh, I don't know why I started there. Has. Um, yeah, like every 
most cities have like just like every city has the rich people and then maybe I think the Vero Beach Dillard is in like one of those sort of fancy malls. Yeah. Do you um have you ever toured Florida? Yeah, but um it's tough because it's um this is another thing that non-musicians might not think of but like um although you probably because you tour it's like it seems to me like uh peninsulas are tough to tour in. I've heard that, but I never understood that because it seems like as long as you have shows lined up, what's the difference between going down into Florida and coming back up into Florida and then well, heading off I to mean, Alabama or There's Georgia? not a lot of places you can play in Florida yeah. and make like good money if you're right. an indie rock band. So you've got to get all in it. And the whole saying, which I've always heard uh, attributed to the Minutemen, I think, is like, if you're not playing, you're paying. Yeah, yeah. So like, like and it's one. true. It's like those, day, those drive days are expensive. So you go down into Florida... And then you've got to get back out of Florida. And any gig you did on the way down, like you can't do it again on the way up. Uh -huh. It's the same reason why a lot of people don't tour Spain. It's oh, just, really? Yeah, it's like getting down into Spain and then getting back out of Spain when there's actually not a lot of money to be made touring Spain or uh -huh. Florida. That's the, one of the reasons why people right. don't do it. But I've, I've played, um, I have played Orlando, Tampa, and I've played Pensacola a bunch of times. Oh, the handlebar there? I think I played that. I played the uh, House of Blues in Orlando, which uh -huh. I think is actually like adjacent to Disney World, if not in it. Um, and I played, um, where's Miami? I, it, where's Ebor? That's in Tampa. That's in Tampa. I played this weird little little place in Ebor. Um, and I don't remember what it was called, but I remember that I they gave they didn't pay us very much, but they gave us an open bar, and um, I got so drunk that I stood. This is terrible, terrible. <laughs> I stole the door guy's book. Like I just I had to get on a plane and fly back to Austin, and I stole his book. <laughs> it was the Royal Family by William Volman, and I was sitting there on the plane, and I was like. What if I? That's a really terrible crime. Kind yeah, of. that's the door guy. It's his, it's his book. Right. Like, wh why do I? And you can it? afford a book. Also. Yeah, I can afford a fucking book. <laughs> are so, you willing to buy him? Like, if he's listening, are you willing to? Uh, yes. If you're the door guy from that club, which I don't remember what it was, and you buy him City, a book plus a, a bonus book. I'll buy you five books <laughs> if you can prove employment. Uh, and then I was like, well, my punishment is I, it was a huge book. It was like as big as Ulysses. It was like, uh -huh. the, you know, thousands of pages. Yeah. And I was like, I have to read this whole damn book as my punishment. Did you? Yeah, it was really good. Wow, that's crazy. So was that with Ockerville River or yes. was that solo? Yeah, that was some years ago, though. The, um, I remember when I was down there, Camper Van Beethoven played, and they, for some reason, they, did, they booked eight shows in Florida. Oh wow! Because I remember, because I can't believe how long we've been in Florida. Like, but I guess that's the, if you can get. The, I don't know. I don't know if they packed it in. Or yeah, what. I mean, you know, that's cool. I, that it, it either means that they were, you know, I, I don't know what that means. Yeah, Maybe I'm, they I'm, were making a ton of money. I'm not making a case for going to Florida. I'm yeah, just saying, uh, yeah. Just because I used to live down. It, but it was always exciting because, um, when someone like New York were to L.A., San Francisco, you just know everyone. Every tour is going to come through there. Yeah. But when you're in South Florida and there's like oh, yeah. Elvis Costello is coming through, you're like, holy shit, really? And I love that. And like we've played places like Spearfish, South Dakota, uh -huh. you know, and the um, the audience ranges in age from like 8 to 80. You know, like people, all kinds of people right. come out. Right, it's just curiosity seekers. Because there aren't seekers. shows there very yeah. often. And um, 
those can be really, really great shows. We used to try to, um, I'm trying to resurrect this. We used to try to either open, open and or end tours on really tiny little off markets. Yeah. Because opening is great because you can test out the sort of vibe in with a no stakes environment. But closing can be really great too because it can just be the party. Mm-hmm. You know, like you work, you get on stage and you like want to do a good show and like sometimes that's in a weird way cheating the audience because maybe they want to there's a way you can be completely free when you don't care that can be a really great gift to an audience but yeah but i feel like not caring is sort of just being confident in a way like unless you literally yes. like i don't care if they have a good time because i'm a, you know i don't respect them but i think yeah. i think if you look like you don't care but deep down you care well there's like there's there's two different ways of not caring. I think about this a fair amount <laughs> yeah. because, you know, as an artist, you're always like, um, there's like expectation and you're sort of like, uh, you know, if you try to cater to what you think people want, they won't really like it. Um, it's just like how, if you go up, I always think about this in terms of like trying to pick somebody up. Like if you go to somebody at a bar and you're like, um, what can I do to make you like me? I really, really like you. Will you like, please, please date me? Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're just going to yeah. like run away from right, you. Right. So you have to have a certain attitude, which is like, I don't really care. Take it or leave it. I'm cool. You know? Yeah. Um, but sometimes people get it, And I fall into this. They get into this um, idea that, that the, the answer to that is to be like solipsistic and just like pursue stuff that's only interesting to you. Mm-hmm. And that's like a kind of a dead end too, because then it's the work becomes kind of like airless and meaningless. And I feel like that kind of tends to happen in like artwork that's sponsored by universities, for example, or like in Europe kind of work that's sponsored by government where there's sort of like no pressure to be entertaining whatsoever. And you end up with this like kind of airless work. So there's right, this sort weird of self-indulgent thing. kind of, yeah, exactly. So there's this weird thing where it's like caring, like what you said, sort of like caring but not caring. Yeah. Um, the so how, you got a big tour coming up, right? Mm-hmm. Is, yeah. is that a standard size tour? Because I looked at the dates, it's like, oh, that's pretty. Uh, it's longer than normal. Um, yeah, it's it's usually we try to. It, it's a us, another usual thing that a lot of musicians say that like three weeks is a good tour length. And after three weeks is when, like, you start to get touchy. And fight you start again to see and people, argue and stuff. Yeah, yeah, crack up and fight. and Because um, there's something about three weeks that just feels very doable. Is that three weeks on and then a break and yeah, then another three weeks? Yeah, even if you take, like, five days or a week off after three weeks, then you can do you're ready three. to do another three weeks. Yeah. It's that, not usually advisable to do what we're about to do. <laughs> well, how long, how long is that now? It's, it's only five weeks, but those extra two weeks is... Can be kind of hard. Do you guys, it's not my business, but do you guys generally get along? Or? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, everybody's really good attitude. So I'm not super, I'm not super worried about it. Mm-hmm. But do you, um, do you use a bus or? You... We do a van. A van? Yeah, I prefer a van, actually. Someone else, um, not to name drop, but Nico Case told me she likes a van because it's just more, it's, you can just get into more places and not have to worry about parking. A van. That's and, one big part of it. And you can leave whenever you want yeah. Um, what I like about it is I'm, so, I'm like a sort of like a workaholic uh-huh. and on a bus as, as luxurious as a bus seems, yeah, it's really just like a trailer. I mean, you've got eight people in a, a thing that's like 
it's literally two rooms uh-huh. because the, and they're both very small. Right. And the middle one is just bunks. So you're you can't I can't sit down and work. There's like somebody's going to spill a beer on me or like, you know what I oh, mean? Oh really? In the so in the smaller van you actually in a van. Yeah, in just... the van I'm just like sitting all day long and and I haven't been drinking and I've got my coffee and oh, So you're saying it's too comfortable in the in the in the bus. Yeah, right? and the, when you take a bus you just end up partying the whole time. Right. And a whole month goes by. Like I would just, you know, we used to do a bus and I would like walk into the club in my like slippers, you know what I mean? I would just like roll out of the club with like a cup of coffee and get on stage to sound check. And it was great, but it was like um my time just disappeared into a vortex. Right. I have a feeling a lot of people don't realize how bands tour. Like, you, it'd be surprising to probably to some people, like, hey, that band that just played for 2,000 people shares hotel rooms. Or, oh, yeah. Like, oh, yeah. And people a lot of the time think that um, if you, uh, if they've heard of you, then you're huge. Right. And then and you're stuck up and you're an asshole and you probably had some unfair advantage to get where you are and uh-huh. you're making tons of money and all this. They, they bring all of this baggage into it. Um, but you know, and even if you're like a huge, even if you're doing really, really well, um, it's still good to like, you know, it's still good to like pay people well. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the time, if you can cut out like ridiculous luxuries, like a tour bus, which is like three times more expensive than a van, you know, you can say, well, guess what? Everybody can walk away with a really big bonus. Or you can sit in a, in a bus and feel like a rock star. You know what I mean? Yeah. When you put it that way to people, they're sort of like, oh, yeah, okay, we'll do the van. Do you, um, so do you guys, so if you're vanning it, you're not sleeping in the van ever, right? No, we get hotel rooms, yeah. Yeah, in the bus, you sleep in the bus. And that's and that's the other thing, you end up being completely nocturnal. Like, I, I feel like, well, whenever I rode in a bus, I would usually be in bed at about 5 uh, am uh-huh. so you sleep you pretty well on those buses uh, i like it some people hate it yeah i was surprised it's like oh the nice little rumble and it's dark and i always felt like i was a little fetus traveling in the belly of the guy driving the bus <laughs> <laughs> and i would be like he's mom you know like this guy he's gonna protect me through the night do you get um because on this podcast i end up talking a lot about real micro minutia of travel like Frequent flyer miles and shit yeah. like that. Do you get involved in that, or do you? I'm having a, uh, a fight with my current manager about this. About frequent. Let me let me be the one to resolve that. Because he feels that. Okay, so for example, we're flying to Oslo. I almost want to predict this. Can I predict it? Yes, predict it. He's saying one of you is saying take the cheapest flights no matter what, and one of you is saying take the one airline. Yeah, and do you could you know how it breaks down? Uh, no. I'm the one saying, saying take one airline yeah. because I'm the one who has to do the travel. And, um, you know, but it's tough because, for example, you look at like Oslo and you could take like a $200 flight on some weird airline deal. Or you can fly like American, which is what I usually like to fly. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about changing over to Delta. But like, you know, for like $800. I mean, that starts to add up, or, or $1,000, right. it starts to add up when you have, like, seven people or whatever. So, you know, but my feeling is frequent flyer is better because you get treated better. They let you check bags more easily. There's a lot more courtesy. Yeah, it's, I think there's probably uh, a certain uh, – I mean, I think, like, if you're just flying to Cleveland and it's a $500 difference, take the cheaper flight. Yeah. But maybe long term – because, yeah, like, because you get the – like, I have gold with United. And yeah. And you're like – 
oh, I can do last-minute changes to my flight. Exactly. Just 24 hours. I was executive platinum for a while on American. I would get bumped up to, like, first class regularly, you know, and I was always treated really well. Yeah. Um, And that has a value to it. I love it. I love it. And, you know, especially these days when the airlines are, like, legit trying to make air travel unpleasant because they're trying to... um, they want to get you to pay for extras. Right. They want to get you to pay for the even more legroom seat, which means that they actually make the planes more cramped. Right. So it's like having that status is helpful. But they're also cutting down on status programs and making them less I know. attractive. Uh, oh, don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> what about uh, hotels? Do you stay on top? Like, do you have a? You must have a travel agent, or do you, no, no, you, no. We just you, we just book them ourselves with a tour manager. Yeah. Yeah. Who's basically like a glorified babysitter. Mm-hmm. That's basically what it's for. That does seem like a thankless job. Depending, it really is. I mean, you guys seem like nice guys, so I'm sure it's not like, yeah. you know, babysitting you. But, yeah. Uh, it, it, isn't, it isn't these days. It used to be. Oh, really? It really did used to be like that. Um, yeah, it's a thankless job. And, and I, I have this theory, which is that if you're a creative person, you know, you're born a creative person. But what field you go into is not so much about your personal actual talents. It's about like your disposition. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that the kind of people, like people who get in the film are like highly organized, responsible, motivated people. People who get into music, it's like, it tends to be a lot of dudes who just want to like drink for free and get laid and mm-hmm. like not grow up. You right. know what I mean? Like not entirely, but right. that's a big part of it. Um, and so uh, you you do get a lot of like, lack of accountability and and i see it with tour managers a lot where it's sort of like um when things are going well everybody's like this is great things are going great and when things are going poorly it's like this is your fault you fucked up you know what did you do wrong and it's like the tour manager was responsible for all the good moments where nothing bad was happening you know but nobody thinks to say hey thanks a lot you did you did a great job today yeah, and I realize that probably some people like the job, so it's not for me to say it's a thankless job because it's not my. It's, it's kind of a job. thankless job, but, and people at uh, at our level tend to burn out. You look at tour managers, and like, what they usually do is they like, they go like real hard for five years, and then they stop doing it. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a hard job. I um. I've never had one, and I I just I mean, there's no need for me to have one really. I just, I just yeah. show up. I can check into it. Hilton Garden in by myself. But. You're not like loading in like right. a ton of gear and you know in the middle of like downtown DC and right. all that stuff. What's the preferred hotel chain? Uh, I don't. We don't really do that. We actually usually Priceline or Airbnb. Oh, bid. Yeah, yeah. I used to. I feel like that used to. I used to get some real sweet deals. Yeah, I know. Like bidding, I know. like you know, like a four star in Dallas for like forty five dollars. I don't know. It just doesn't seem to. When that first started to happen. That was th- those are some of my most rock star feeling moments is like frequent flyer stuff and um, Priceline stuff, because, you know, with my like scruffy hair and my like ripped clothes with stains on them and like my like booze smell that I don't have as often as I used to, um, I used to love going to like a really nice Hilton and I'm sitting in the elevator next to the like straight job dude and he's looking at me like what the fuck are you doing here? I've had I've had the exact. <laughs> I actually, you know, I'm, ri- I'm writing a book now about a tour, uh-huh. and I tell it. And there's a thing where, as a guy, I was going into. A, this is a spoiler for the book that's coming out Uh-oh. in March. But anyway, they, uh, yeah, there was a guy. I was in line. 
I went to, I was had one of those it was one of those hellish travel days where flight keeps getting delayed, delayed, and you're like, mm-hmm. oh, I'm gonna be here eight hours. And I said, I might as well join the club for one day. That, like, yeah. And I was getting the. I'm pa- a big believer. Like in a that day too. pass, like for fifty dollars, I can sit here and. And there was a guy behind me in line. He's like, I don't know. I guess it was taking a while or something. He's like, Is he a member? <laughs> like the guy's helping you. And I turn. I who? And he, and he pointed at me. He's like, Like what is it about me that? Yeah. Why can't I spend forty five or fifty dollars to go eat fucking. Checks mix. Yeah, exactly. Like it was such a, and it just, it was one of those things, because I've also been in that, like the first class lounge where there's a guy's just like yelling at some reservation. Yeah. It's like, how do you talk to someone like that? And you're like a rich guy and you're like, you probably have a nice life. And I did that. I recently, um, I recently broke into a conversation like that and started yelling at the guy who was yelling at the clerk. Yeah. Yeah. What happened? I said, my band thought this was really funny that I said it this way. I said, Excuse me, could you please shut the fuck up? Oh, you said that? Yeah. <laughs> That's a nice way to deal. And I, I was like, I don't appreciate the way you're talking to this guy. I don't appreciate what you said to us. You know, I think you're being an asshole. And um, he was scared. You could see he became scared and he kind of backed down. And he started muttering about me w- under his breath. Was he just complaining about something and just sort of like... He was, um, this was at a hotel and he was saying that he should get a discount for the hotel because he was a veteran, mm-hmm. but then he didn't. And the guy was asking for a car, like, give me your card. And he said, I don't have it. But, uh, also I'm a member of AARP. And the guy was like, well, can you give me that card? <laughs> and he said, I don't have that, but, but I'm a government worker. So I should get a, a discount. Oh my for that. God. Yeah. And the guy said, well, give me a card for that. He said, I don't have it. I want to speak to the manager. What's your name? I want to get your name. And the guy was African and he gave him this name and he said, I don't even know how to pronounce that. Like, you know, he, and he said something else. Yeah. And then, um, we were talking about where we were trying to park our van. So it was in the light. So it wouldn't get broken into. Uh-huh. And he said, you guys are talking like a bunch of women. <laughs> And that was like, after those two things, I was like... Yeah, he sounds like bad news. I was like, yeah, could you... uh, That was when I said, excuse me, could you please shut the fuck up? (laughs) And and, uh, I didn't even mean to do it. But, uh, and then I was like, I, now I'm in this, you know, like, I'm having a confrontation. Mm -hmm. You know, like, how does this end? I don't really. I didn't have. That's like when a your plan. tour manager steps in and she was trying to park the van. Oh, okay. She was like circling the parking lot again and and again and again. But then um, the next day, he was really nice. He like opened the door for me and I gave him a big smile and I said thank you very much. Ah, oh, that's good. You guys made peace. Yeah, I mean we didn't like talk through. He might our... be a guy who doesn't even remember that it happened. Yeah, I or think he, he or might he just didn't have. want to go through that again. Have you ever been a hired gun on a tour? Like, No. Uh, well, I was sort of like a hired gun in the sense that um, I'm not good enough to be a hired gun, really. Because yeah. like, my strength, and it's not a fishing for compliments thing, my strength is songwriting. So, I mean, I'm not like the guy you You're get for the blazing guitar solo. Right. But I did um, do a, uh, I produced this Rocky Erickson record. Oh, okay. So in that way, I was hired. And um, I went on tour with him. And all I had to do was like play guitar and sing some harmonies. And it was like blissful, you know, it was amazing because I don't know much about him. I like I feel like he's someone I, I just well um bypassed for some reason. The the Cliff Notes version is that 
He was in this band that's kind of widely regarded as the first ever band to call themselves Psychedelic Rock. Uh, he was he was about 15 when he joined. What was the band again? This 13th Four Elevators. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, they had this song, You're Gonna Miss Me, which is a big hit. Um, Rocky Schizophrenic. Uh, he had a member of the band who was a real evangelist for LSD. So they would take acid before every show. Rocky uh-huh. took acid probably like about 300 times, something like that. And... Um, he also, because this was uh, Texas in the 60s, he became a target for uh, the law enforcement. They kind of wanted to make an example of him. It's kind yeah. of a long story why uh-huh. that happened. But at one point when his mental health was at a particularly vulnerable state, they pulled him over. They found two joints in his possession, and they were going to put him in jail. And in a kind of a one flew over the cuckoo's nest scenario, he uh, pled insanity. So they put him in a prison for the criminally insane. Uh, where he was with like pedophiles, rapists, uh-huh. murderers. Um, he had a band in there actually, for and he was there for two years. They gave him shock treatment a bunch of times. Oh man! And eventually, they his mother got him out. And his mother also has some mental health illness uh, issues, and she's um, very religious, and she didn't want him to take any medication. So they released him into her care, but he was completely unmedicated, and he ended up um, all his teeth fell out. His hair was became all matted. He was living in this like public housing in North Austin, uh-huh. South Austin, and uh, stealing people's mail. You know, he got into trouble for that. And then his brother um, ended up getting him released from his mother's care. He started to go back on like Abilify and, um, you know, started to reconnect with people in his life. And um, his manager hired me to produce his first record. It was like in 15 years. Um and uh, it was an amazing, it was like a really, really powerful experience. It actually kind of like changed my life. Oh, really? Yeah, because uh, he's, he's the most, I've never met a person who is so truly brilliant. You know, like I've met lots of people who are uh-huh. um, really amazing and I'm in awe of them. But like, and I've met people who like pretend to be crazy and are really just selfish assholes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but like Rocky is like this larger than life guy, real demons and real genius. Does he live in Austin or is he? Yes, yeah. Um, and uh, he's really, really open to the moment uh, in this way that makes his work beautiful and also kind of chaotic. What's the name of that record? True Love Cast Out All Evil. Oh, I'm going to have yeah. to give that a listen. Yeah, so I, I produced that and I went on the road with him and that was the only time that I've ever been just like a guy playing guitar in the background. And it was great. Yeah, so much less, so less, much less pressure. Yes. I would think. Yeah. I mean, I felt pressure because I wanted people to, people bring a lot of their own baggage to watching Rocky and they're like, they're thinking thoughts about him. So I wanted the shows to go well. Right. But I also, you know, there was only so much I can do. Like, if I play guitar super great, it's not going to make the show, <laughs> it's not going to like sell the show for people. Right. Um, did uh, what, did you have some sort of feud with Don Henley or something? I seem to mm-hmm. remember. <laughs> I had a weird thing with Don Henley. Uh, I um, I started doing a um album series like several years ago where I would make these like cover EPs and mm-hmm. I'd give them away for free on my website. Uh-huh. The first one was like songs about being on tour, recorded on tour. The second one was these sort of esoteric songwritery songs from the 60s and 70s the third one was like 80s pop hits which is i should have known that that was going to be a problem um and whenever i cover a song if i hit a part that i don't believe 
I, I just change it. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Like a, la- a line I don't like or uh, something that doesn't apply to me or some part where I feel like they're like, they're caving on the sentiment, like they're backing down. Uh-huh. And, and I covered The End of the Innocence, which is, I think, an amazing song. And I actually do think that's a good song. It's such a good song. And, you know, it's so sad. And he's saying, like, uh, we've sold everything out and everything's broken. And this our life these days is just mediated by lawyers. And the, the environment's just falling apart. And there's, like, no safe place that you can go to. And really, he's sort of almost saying, like, sex and and romance is like the only sanctuary really left. And it's such a like dark, sad song. And then at the end, the last verse, he kind of does this thing where he's like, Oh, it's all cool though. Like, I love you. And let's like, just like be happy. And you know, it's like this kind of total cop out. And so I would just hit that part of the song and I thought, well, that's, he ruins that he's just like, Oh, JK, you know, like, (laughs) so I was just like, um, I took it, I rewrote it a little so that it was like still sad. Uh-huh. And um, the his lawyers contacted me and were like, you need to cease and desist and take this down. And it was right around the time um, Frank Ocean had that Nostalgia Ultra mixtape that where he um, repurposes the um, Hotel California, like the melody and chords mm-hmm. and stuff. So it kind of got lumped in with that. And they asked Don Henley about it um, on some interview in Australia, I think. Mm. And he kind of like shot off the mouth about Frank Ocean and about us. And um, one of the things he said that really cracked me up was he's like, you don't go into a museum and like draw a mustache on the paintings. And I was like, that's like, there's a famous Marcel Duchamp uh, picture that's like the Mona Lisa with a mustache. It's like a landmark of art history of the 20th century. So that cracked me up that he kind of like, said that like you don't it's like well actually that's like a known art history (laughs) textbook thing but um you know i always felt that um you know when i was a younger i was always really into like old time music you know and you'd hear a blues song that would be like another song that would just like take the melody from another song or they'd take the lyrics and i mean it is kind of like plagiarism but it's also this kind of just talking back and forth and you hear it in like hip-hop a lot too where people will like sort of quote somebody else's um, verse or they'll like do an interpolation of another song. And it's not like exactly theft. It's a, di- it's kind of like a dialogue. Isn't there like a proper channel though that you can, like, could you just record it so. like you record a cover and license it or whatever? The, yeah. Or pay the royalty on it or something? I know, but like, Isn't that I mean, it was free. <laughs> this is my new theory about this. It's, um, if somebody is uh, accused of somebody else of ripping off or plagiarizing their work, Whoever has less money should win. (laughs) As a comic, I can't go along with that. Oh, okay. But, uh, I mean, I also think that if, I mean, I don't know what it's like to be Don Henley, but I feel like I would be sort of flattered if someone kind of fucked with my song, unless they were just saying, you weren't, because you weren't saying he sucks. You're kind of like, I love Don Henley. Yeah. And and what's so weird is that now I have a relationship with him in some way. Have you ever actually interacted with him? No, but, but I mean, what I mean to say is that, my life has gotten entwined with mm-hmm. Don Henley. Like when I was a kid on the way to church in my parents' Oldsmobile Cutlass Cruiser, listening to The End of the Innocence, I never thought one day this guy's going to be super pissed off at me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, for playing That's this song. That's pretty exciting, yeah. Did you, um, did you pull the song? or? Yeah, we pulled the whole, the whole thing. Yeah, we I, pulled the whole uh, EP. It's interesting. So he, someone just must have just 
be poking around and said, oh, we Well, we'll I, I will say this, and I don't say this very often, but Roseanne Cash, uh, we also did uh, Seven Year Eight. Uh -huh. She also wrote, and but, she, but what she did was way cooler. She wrote me a personal letter uh -huh. and said, I'm an Ockerville River fan. I think what you did with the song is great. Um, I'm very active in like copyright law and trying to like affect she's very anti like piracy she's uh -huh. very like anti sort of inequitable profit breakdowns from streaming she's like this is sort of my political position right and um i see the value in what you're doing but like i can't let you do this um i'm very flattered i like the cover you know we can talk about it more if you want you know you should like get involved with my group you know so like yeah, it was like, very it was much more classy was, yeah. And I thought, okay, well, I mean, I'll, I'll pull it for for Roseanne Cash. Did um, I, it's interesting you're 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 a fan of Don Henley because I feel like the Eagles kind of. I mean, this is going to be controversial. I think they kind of get a bad rap. Yeah, well, I mean, they, they they do get it. It's what's funny about the Eagles is that um, it's a real test case. I had this um, producer who was kind of my musical mentor. And my life mentor in a lot of ways, Brian Beatty, and he had a lot of great sayings that I still hold to. And one of them was, just because it's good, that doesn't mean it's good. And I think that's sort of true with the Eagles. It's like, that's, that's the, the primary tension with the Eagles, is that they seem sleazy, and their songs seem insincere, and they seem, there's something about them... Uh, a whiff that comes off of them like the high school bully mm -hmm. kind of, that's how they seem like it's like the high school bully of bands right and um it's not fun to like their music but at the same time you can't argue with how great they are at putting together like melodies yeah, and chords hacks, and making recordings yeah. and i mean they, they've got so many huge hits that like are kind of undeniable and you'd have to be contrary to mm -hmm. just say that like they're not good songs. Yeah. Um, so you know, I it's there. It's a funny example of that where it's sort of like I, I see both sides of it, kind of. But I, I've never been a big believer. Uh, it feels like a very teenage, and maybe I'm going out on a limb by saying this, but also specifically male thing to like talk about what's what's good and bad based on. Um, considerations that don't have anything to do with whether or not the music is enjoyable. Right. It's like the sort of is it ideologically pure thing. And it's like, well, since when does that, is that a, you know... Right, you're not going to get to know every recording artist whose songs you like. Personally. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, that's always seemed like a kind of a weird thing to me. It's like, just because I really like to go to, to like eat a delicious, wholesome, uh, locally sourced vegan meal or whatever doesn't mean that I'm going to like pretend that McDonald's hamburger isn't t good tasting. Exactly. You know what I mean? It is good tasting, obviously. Are there, um, are there any other bands you think, uh, get a bad rap who are actually, um, well, Steely Dan would be a real obvious I would say one. that too. Yeah. Cause I don't see, understand the hate. It's like, these are, it's kind of smart, well-played songs. Oh, it's amazing. I, I mean, I think people, um, are suspicious of how slick it is. Yeah. I think that it sounds to them like quote unquote elevator music, but there's a place in the world for elevator music, first of all. And second of all, if it's elevator music, it's like the best elevator music that you could possibly imagine being made with like this incredible lyric set to it, you know? Um, the monkeys would be another one mm -hmm. where people kind of like think of them as a, 
a novelty band. Right. So, I mean, those are some that, that pop right into my head off the top. Cool, man. Well, thanks for talking to me. Let's talk about the albums away. Yeah, that's right. And then, I mean, I guess I could say what label it's on, but that's what's not ATO. 1973. Yeah. When people... They're good people. Yeah. ATO Records. Who else great, is on ATO? label. Who else is on ATO? Well, um, My Morning Jacket uh-huh. would be the sort of uh, biggest... They're good, oh, Well, oh, yeah. And, um, and then the other one is... Oh, God, man. Hold on a second. Um, that band that's like huge and won a Grammy that everybody loves that are really great. Oh, Dave Matthews Band. Well, Dave Matthews is the guy who started the okay, label. Okay, yeah. Oh, Alabama Shakes. Alabama okay. Shakes. Margaret Glasby, really great songwriter. Um, King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard, a really cool <laughs> psych rock band from Australia. There's some there's some ATRs cool, for you. So it's AuckervilleRiver.com uh, and uh, yep, Twitter. Right. And you guys got Twitter, a bunch of tour dates going all uh, over the world, A bunch right? of tour dates all over... Um, United States, uh, Europe, and uh, next year, Australia and other places. Oh, cool, man. Thanks for doing this, man. Oh, yeah, my pleasure. And uh, we'll see you guys another time. Bye. Bye. Feral Audio. This is firefighter Raphael Poirier for Firehouse Subs. Introducing the new spicy Cajun chicken sub, Cajun seasoned grilled chicken breast, zesty cherry peppers, and house-made Cajun mayo. Just $5.55 for a medium. Remember, a portion of every sub you buy helps provide life-saving equipment for first responders. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Limited time only, plus tax. Participating locations. Firehouse Subs would donate a minimum of $1 million in 2019 to the Firehouse Subs Public Safety Foundation by donating 0.11% of every purchase.